guys just as an anchor church um, sign of honor and welcome, would you just stand to your feet right now and welcome John Bevere as he comes to share with us this morning? Thank you, guys. Man, so much. Hey, good morning. Good morning. It's so good to be back. Gosh. Hey, everybody, just... Just stay standing just for a moment. I, I always love to pray before bringing the word. Can I say that I'm so excited to be here? I absolutely love you, and I so missed you last year. Uh, you know, last year I was all scheduled to come, and uh, we had just done spoken at Inspire Church, and it was actually my, 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 my son's first time he spoke in a church, my youngest son. And right when he came off the platform, I got the news that my dad went to heaven. So we had to immediately fly back to the mainland. And your pastors were so great, Pastor, Pastor Carl and Kanani. They were just like, what can we do to serve you? We're going to show your video. I mean, just the way they responded. I had never in 30 years of ministry canceled a meeting because of reasons for me. I felt terrible. But your pastor made me feel so, so, so welcomed and loved. And, and yeah. So that's right. So any, so I just want to say thank you so much for being just such a great church. And I want to say this right now. I am a guest here, but not just a guest, but I am part of this family. Amen. All right. Well, let's pray. All right. We're going to get into the word this morning. All right. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you so very much. First of all, for the privilege of being your children. Lord, you could have made us slaves, and that would have been amazing, but you called us sons and daughters of God. So this morning, Father, we're asking in the name of Jesus that, Holy Spirit, you would literally invade this sanctuary, that you would reveal Jesus to us greater than we've ever known him before. And Lord, we just don't want a message this morning. We want to encounter with you. And so, Father, we're asking in Jesus' name, thank you that this is a day that we will be forever and ever changed. In Jesus' name, we give you all the glory and the honor and the praise. And everybody that agrees shouts, come on, give him praise for what he's going to do. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. You know, anytime something like that happens, I get excited. Because <laughs> I just, you know what? We hold a glorious gospel. Everybody say a glorious gospel. Glorious gospel. And this gospel is what changes lives. You know, I had, a, I had a call from my son this morning. He's at Hillsong College in, um, in Sydney, Australia, okay? And he said, I didn't have a call, I had a text. He said, Dad. We just had to get a guy set free from a demon, and it took two hours. I guess they baptized him, and as soon as they baptized him, this demon started manifesting, and he said, Dad, the guy is completely free. And you know, my sons have never seen that before. They've never experienced that, and I was just so proud of them. But you know what? How many of you know that we serve a living God? Can you say amen? So... I just want to say again how much I love your leadership team, your entire pastoral team. Can I say this? You're in a very, very safe place. And um, I get to be in churches all over the world. I've been doing this for 25 years. And let me tell you something. I know a phenomenal leader when I meet, meet him. And I want to say this. When I walked up on the platform this morning, it's been two years since I've been here. I really sense something from the Holy Spirit. And that is you are purged for tremendous growth. And when the Lord, Lord says something like that, that means it's an opportunity for you. You have a world of influence that you're reaching people that this church cannot reach in its own ability with just this platform. 
You have a platform. Do you know what builds your platform? Is the excellence that you live in, in the community, in the influence, in the world of influence that you have. So I just want to encourage you, believe for opportunities to share the gospel with the people in your world. Because I sense strongly God is saying this church is about to explode. Can you say amen? All right, this morning I'm going to share with you out of my newest book. It's called Good or God, Why Good Without God Isn't Enough. Now, I want to tell you this, that I am so passionate about what I'm sharing with you this morning. I've done something that I've never, ever done before, and that's literally I'm doing a book tour all around the United States and around the world because I personally believe that this message is one of the most important messages God has given me to date for the church. I want to open up by saying this. Today in our society, and this mentality has even crept into the church, we assume that if something is good, we automatically think it's of God. In other words, we've almost made good and God synonymous. Because after all, aren't we born with the inherent knowledge of what is right and wrong? But now let me say this. If good is so obvious, why does Hebrews chapter 5 tell us that we have to have discernment to recognize the difference between good and evil? Why does King Solomon at the dawn of his reign cry out to God and say, God, give your servant an understanding heart that I might be able to tell the difference between good and evil? Now, if you look at this thing in context, it's even more amazing. He's at the beginning of his reign. He's about to become king of a nation. And God appears to him and says, ask me anything you want. And what he asks for is the ability to discern the difference between good and evil. I don't think good is as obvious as we think it is. You would think it would be a good idea to preserve the life of your friend. Yet Peter does this with Jesus and gets sharply corrected. And Jesus says to him, you are not mindful of the things of God. You are mindful of the things of men. If you look at this woman, she opens up, breaks open a $30,000 bottle of perfume. Judas incites her. He rallies the other disciples. They said this money could have been used to buy food and clothing for the poor. Jesus corrects them and says, why are you criticizing her for doing a good thing? So what they judged as being stupid wasteful. Jesus said it was good and it's going to be remembered. If you remember, the rich young ruler comes running up to Jesus and he cries out, good teacher, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And before Jesus even answers this all important question of how to be saved, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God. Now, is Jesus not good? No, he is perfect good. But what Jesus is saying is this, you have a standard for good. God has a standard for good, and the two are not the same. Don't put me in your category. Good is all about a reference point, right? I mean, you can have two families moving into two identical homes. They are both three-bedroom, two-bath homes. For one family, it's a good move. For one family, it's a bad move. The family, it's a good move. They just moved out of a trailer house. The family, it's a bad move. They just moved out of a $3 million estate. I remember when God really made this clear to me. I had flown to Sweden and I was getting ready to speak to 6,000 leaders from all over Eastern Europe. And I remember I was in my hotel room because when you fly to Europe from the mainland, you get there early in the morning. So I had all day Friday to pray in my room. And I'm praying and I had judged a certain situation to be good. 
And in my hotel room, the Holy Spirit said, no, son, it's not good. And he gave me scriptures to support what he was saying. And so I found myself getting in a little argument with the Holy Spirit. And finally, I just kind of put my foot down. I said, but God, all the good that's come out of this situation. And then the Lord said this to me, and this is what changed my life forever. He said, son, it wasn't the evil side of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Eve was attracted to. It was the good side. And I remember when he said that to me, my Bible is laying on the bed and I flew over to Genesis and I read these words. When the woman saw the tree was good and the word good literally leapt up off the page at me. When she saw it was good, it was pleasant, it was desirable to make her wise, she partook. And I'm standing in shock in this hotel room. And you know what the Lord said to me? He said, son, there is a good that will lead people away from me. And all of a sudden, I realized how Jesus' words would be fulfilled. You know, when the disciples asked Jesus, what is it going to be like right before you return? What did Jesus say to them? What was the number one topic of discussion? Be careful that you're not deceived. He said that the deception in our day would be so powerful, so potent, that if possible, the elect would be deceived. Now, that used to bother me. I used to think, come on, how can the elect be deceived? But then, that day in that hotel room, I realized, if possible, the elect will not be deceived by satanic rock concerts, by drug-infested parties. They're not going to be deceived by sexual orgies. Christians, if possible, can be deceived with evil that is masked with good. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, there is a way, now look at these words, there is a way, there's a method that seems right. It seems acceptable. It seems desirable. It seems profitable. It seems wise to a man. It seems good to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, I ignored this scripture for years because I always said, hey, I'm on the road to life. Jesus said I'm on the road to life. This isn't talking to me. This is talking to non-Christians who are not on the path of life. But then I made the mistake last year of discovering what God says to his people. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, look at this. Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Now that's not spoken to unbelievers. That's spoken to believers. And all of a sudden I realized, hey, wait a minute. The way of life, the way of death speaks of the wisdom we live by as believers. So if you look at Proverbs 12, 14 again, it makes a whole lot of sense. There is wisdom that seems good. It seems right. It seems acceptable, profitable, beneficial to a man. But where it takes you is where you don't want to find yourself. Now, last year, another scripture became abundantly clear to me. And that is this scripture. Paul, the apostle, is speaking to a church that he loves and cares about so deeply and dearly. I mean, he spent more time with this church than any other church. And look at what Paul says to this church. He says, but I fear. Now look at this. This is amazing. But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. Now look at the word corrupted. To corrupt something means it, it started out good but it went bad, right? Will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. Now, when I saw this last year, I went, oh my, my. Wow, this is the exact example that the Holy Spirit used with me in that hotel room with Sweden. 
And I thought, maybe there is something more to this garden situation than what we've seen. Now, I started praying about it. And the first thing that came to my heart when I started praying about this is that Eve was never gossiped about. She was never lied to. She was never spoken to harshly. She was never taken advantage of by a man. She was never stolen from. Do you understand that Eve was in a perfect environment? And to make matters even more complex, an environment that was permeated with the presence of God. Now, how does the enemy get her corrupted in that perfect environment? Because if we can understand how he can deceive her in that environment, we could certainly understand how he could deceive a believer in a corrupt environment. Do you see that? And so I started praying. Now, I want to I review what God did, okay? In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, God planted a garden. And he creates this man, and he says to this man, you can eat freely from any tree in the garden. So I want you to look at those words. You can freely eat from any tree. Do you know what? That's his goodness, right? I mean, a lot of people don't see it that way because you know what they believe? They believe there's just two trees in the garden. Now, can I say this? There are over 2,500 different fruit-bearing trees in the world, correct? I have to believe at least one of each of those trees is represented in that garden. So you know what God is saying? Adam, you can freely eat from 2,499 trees. Now that's his goodness. Would you agree with me on that? I mean, come on, let's think it through. Did you wake up this morning? Did you have food to eat? Did you meet friends at church? Did you have a car to drive? Did you have sun shining on you? Did you have clean water? I could go on and on and on for all the good things God has done for us. Can you say amen to that? But how many of you know God wanted a genuine relationship with this man? Now, do you know what I love about coming to this church? Carl actually said it this morning. He actually likes me, okay? All right, nobody paid him and his staff to have me come in, okay? Now, as human beings, we like that, don't we? Do you know that we're creating his image? Do you think God wants to be forced to be in a relationship with anybody? I got news for you. He has no desire. And so God says, all right, I don't want this man to be forced to be in a relationship with me. He says, so you can freely eat from 2,499, except for the one that's in the midst of the garden that gives the knowledge of what's right and wrong. Don't eat it. The day you do, our relationship's over, right? Now, a lot of people think that Adam and Eve were really spaceheads because of what they did. Can I be really honest with you? Because God brings every single animal that he's created before Adam to see what Adam's going to name them. Do you understand that Adam named 1.25 million species of animals? And then he remembered what he named each one of them. And he didn't have Google or an iPad. You understand what I'm talking about, okay? So after God brings all the animals, he goes, well, there's not a suitable helper for Adam. So God puts Adam into this deep sleep, takes the rib out, creates Eve, brings her to him. And Adam goes, whoa, man. And that's how she got her name. Whoa, man, okay? <laughs> kind of stuck, all right? And if you believe that, you believe the Pope's Jewish. So... We don't know when the next incident occurred. It could have been a year later, three years later, 10 years later, but the enemy targets her and there's a reason for it. And I give that reason in the book and I, I don't have time to share it this morning. 
But the enemy targets her and he's got a four-step strategy to get her away, to get her corrupted. Step number one is he looks at her and says these words, so you can't eat from every tree, can you? Now, what has he just done with that one statement? He's got her eyes off of all the 2,499 she can eat from onto the one that's restrained. That is exactly what he wants to do with you. He wants to get your eyes off of all the things that God has freely blessed you with and get your eyes on the one or two things that may be withheld. Good preaching, John. Amen. Thanks. Okay. So then she goes, oh, no, no, we can eat freely from the trees. But he's got her focus on this tree. But then he goes to phase two. Everybody say phase two. Phase two. He negates the word of God. He looks at her and he goes, you're not going to die. Now, how often does this happen with us? You got a young man meets a young woman in church. They fall deeply in love with one another, right? They're going to get married. They know it's going to be a couple years. One day they look at each other and they go, you know what? You got rent. I got rent. And it's expensive in Hawaii. You pay utilities. I pay utilities. You have cable. I have direct TV. <laughs> Let's move in together. And so we'll save so much money. We'll build for our future. We'll be able to give more at church. So what have they just done? They've negated Ephesians 5 that says, don't let sexual immorality once be named among you. They've negated 1 Thessalonians 5 that says, avoid the very appearance of evil. They've negated Hebrews 13 that says, the marriage bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. They've negated it for what is acceptable in our society, what appears good, what seems beneficial for our future. Sure is quiet here right now. So then once he does this with Eve, he goes to phase three. Now phase three is where he's going to put the dagger in. This is where he's going to take her life. Look what he says to her. He said, for God knows. Now, what is he implying with those three words? For God knows. He's saying something to Eve. He's saying something like this. God knows something you don't. In other words, God's hiding something from you. God knows the day you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be able to tell the difference between good and evil just like God. Now, you got to remember, he's got her attention off of all the myriads of trees she can eat from onto the one. And remember, it's good. Everybody say that with me. It's good. Okay, with that statement, you know what her mind starts doing? She starts going down the road. Wait a minute. There is something good in that tree for my husband and I, and God is withholding it. So what has the enemy just done with her? He has perverted the character of God in her eyes and made God look like a taker instead of the giver that he is. It, it, he is. Now, David made the statement. He said, your throne, its foundation is righteousness and justice. David's a king, and he knows for a king to have an enduring reign, he has to be a man of integrity, right? So he knows God is perfect in integrity. What the enemy has just done with her is just made God's twisted his integrity, twisted his character. And the moment he does that, she turns on him and partakes of the fruit. See, how often has this happened with us? You know, we've been praying about something about our daughter now for a year. And it's, she's just not getting better. And then another family comes to church and they, their daughter has that same situation, that same circumstance, and their daughter gets healed in that one service. Now all of a sudden you think the enemy starts bringing you down the road. God's withhold from you. 
God's taking from you. As soon as he does this with her, she turns on him. And then step four is easy. He offers her the good that God has withheld from her. See, this is why James says in the New Testament, now listen carefully to these words. He says, do not be deceived. Everybody say, do not be deceived. Now, this is not a command. This is a promise. Do you know what James is saying right here? This is how you can become deceived proof. Are you with me? Deceive proof. Everybody say deceive proof. Now, when we're living in a day that Jesus tells me, if possible, the elect are going to be deceived, I want to know how to be deceived proof. And so what James is saying here is if you get this truth in you, you are never, ever going to be deceived. What's the truth? Every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, of whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. What is James saying here? He's saying this. If you get this truth in you, you'll never be deceived. Here's the truth. There is nothing good for you outside of God. That is so powerful, but so simple. I don't care how good it looks, how beneficial it seems, how acceptable it is in our society or culture, how beneficial it appears, how wise you think it's going to make you, how profitable it's going to be, how sweet she talks to you, and how rude your wife has been to you. If it's contrary to the written word of God, it will take you to a place you don't want to find yourself. Can you say amen? amen? So what is the standard? Remember I said that good is all about a reference point. What's our reference point? Paul tells us right before he leaves this earth. These are some of the last words he wrote on earth. He says all scripture. Everybody say all scripture. All scripture is given by God, is inspired by God, and is useful to teach us what is true, what is good. And it makes us realize what is wrong, what is bad for our lives. Now look at this. It corrects us. Somebody goes, I don't like correction. Well, then you're stupid. <laughs> okay, now I had an employee who talked very disrespectfully to his manager, and they brought it to me, and I prayed about it, and I said, God, what do I tell this guy, kid? And the Lord said, just read to him Proverbs 12, 1 of the New Living Translation. And I read to him, he who hates, this is a quote, he who hates correction is stupid. <laughs> okay, so, so what is wrong with correction? All right, so if I'm in Dallas, Texas, and I want to take I-35 North because I want to go see Craig Rochelle, right? I know it's a four-hour journey, right, on I-35 North, but Dallas has crazy highways, Let's say inadvertently I get on I-20 going east to Shreveport. Do you know how wide, how big the expanse is in Texas? I'm going to drive four hours before I realize I'm going the wrong way. Do you understand? But there is this woman in my life, and it's the only other woman Lisa permits me to have. Her name is Siri. <laughs> and you know what Siri says? Hey, stupid, you're on the wrong highway. Do you know what Siri has just done? Her correcting me has just saved me eight hours of driving. So why is correction negative? If you're on the wrong road, it gets you on the right road. Because don't we want to go to the right destination? And if you're on the right road, it keeps you on the right road. Good preaching, John. Amen. Thank you. So scripture is the standard. Everybody say scripture. So can we talk about scripture for a few minutes? Just give me a few minutes to talk about it, all right? 66 books written over 1,500 years. 
Now, would you think about how long 1,500 years is? If I go back 1,500 years, I am in 516 AD. Do you understand the British Empire hasn't even existed yet? Do you understand that we're only 200 years after Constantine of Rome? I mean, that is a long time ago. 66 books in the Bible written over 1,500 years by over 40 writers from three different continents in three different languages. Okay? Many of these guys didn't even live in the same generation, and many of them didn't even know what the other guy wrote. You put it all together, and you get this perfectly harmonized book called the Bible? Come on. That's like going back to 516 A.D. Pick out a guy, say write a chapter. Then go to 600, pick out a guy, write a chapter. 700, pick out a guy and write a chapter. And you put it all together by over 40 writers over in 2016, and you tell me that book's going to make any sense? Now, to make matters even more amazing, if you look at the Old Testament, 39 books written over 1,100 years, with the last book of the Old Testament written 400 years before Jesus is born. If you go back 400 years, we got no University of Hawaii. We got no Hawaii's. Do you understand how long 400 years is? I mean, the pilgrims just got on the boat. Okay, the last book of the Old Testament is written 400 years before Jesus is even born, right? Now, these writers of the Old Testament, many of them living in different generations, many of them not knowing what the other guys wrote, made predictions about the coming Messiah. They're called prophecies, predictions, okay? Things like, he would be born in Bethlehem. He'd be called out of Egypt. He would ride in Jerusalem on a donkey. He'd be betrayed by a friend. He'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver in another place. Uh, that 30 pieces of silver in the Old Testament was written that it would be given to a potter's field, which it was. He would be crucified. He would be, called, uh, he would be buried in a brand new tomb. There are over 300 of these predictions written with the last prediction written 400 years before Jesus is born. Got it? Do you know Jesus fulfilled all 300? Okay, so there's this scientist named Dr. Peter Stoner, and he's an expert in probability. Now, what is probability? Simple probability. If I have a five-gallon paint bucket, and I have nine white tennis balls, one yellow tennis ball, and I shake them all up, and I blindfold a guy, and I say, pick one tennis ball out, the chance of picking out the one yellow tennis ball is one in ten. That's probability. Well, this scientist is an expert in this, okay? But he doesn't do the work alone. He employs 600 science students from 12 different classes. And they go on this massive research and calculation program to figure out what is the probability that any human being could fulfill just eight of these prophecies. Let me show you the eight that they chose, okay? Here's the eight that they chose. Number one, Christ to be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 writes that. Christ to be preceded by a messenger. Isaiah, Malachi, and totally different generations write that. Christ entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah in a different generation wrote that. Christ to be betrayed by a friend, the psalmist, in a completely different generation wrote that. And here's the eight others. Now, they do this massive calculation. What are the chances that any human being from the time of Christ to the end of the second millennium, 2,000 years, could fulfill? Anybody on earth could fulfill those eight prophecies. Now, the National American Scientific Council, third party, does, does an investigation on what they found. And they said not only are they accurate, but they're conservative. So what I'm about to share with you is conservative, right? 
So he and his 600 science students take those eight prophecies, do the calculations. You know what they determine? The probability of any human being on earth fulfilling those eight prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Now, what is 10 to the 17th power? That is a 1 with 17 zeros behind it. I don't even know what that number is. Do you? No. I can illustrate it. If I have that many silver dollars, right? I have no place on earth to store them. I just got to spread them out all over the ground. And if I spread them on the ground, you know what I will do? I will cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. If I have that many silver dollars. Do you understand how big Texas is? You have no concept of living in Hawaii, okay? It takes, it takes 15 hours to drive from one end to the other. And that's going 75. And that's no traffic lights. Okay? And no, no Honolulu traffic. Okay? Now, gather all those silver dollars together. Mark one of them. Shuffle them all up. Redistribute them all over the state of Texas. Put a guy in a helicopter blindfolded in Oklahoma. Start flying over Texas. At any point, he can say, let it down. He gets out, still blindfolded, picks up one coin. The chance of picking up that one coin is the chances that any human being could have fulfilled those eight prophecies. Yet Jesus fulfilled all eight of them. So Dr. Stoner and his 600 scientists said, what about 16 prophecies? So they go through hours and hours of calculations. They took 16 prophecies. And they said the chances of any human being over 2,000 years fulfilling those 16 prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 45th power. Now, that's a one with 45 zeros behind it. If I have that many silver dollars, I can't store them on the earth. i got to just make a big ball of silver dollars, right? You know how big the sphere of silver dollars would be? The diameter of that sphere would be 60 times the distance of the earth to the sun. If you want mileage, it's 5.5 billion miles. Basically, you would get out to the orbit of Uranus. That's the farthest planet in our solar system. Did you see the Martian? <laughs> Did you see how long it took him to fly in a spaceship to Mars? Okay, do you understand how big this is? Now, mark one of those silver dollars. Blindfold a guy. Put him in an airplane. It would take 400 years to fly nonstop around that ball of silver dollars. At any point in time, he could say, let down. Then he may have to dig to the center. Because remember, the Mark 1 might be in the center. So he might have to dig 2.75 billion miles to the center. The chance of picking out a one Mark silver dollar is the chance that any human being could have fulfilled eight of those prophecies, yet, or 16 of those prophecies, yet Jesus fulfilled all 16. That's, that's right, brother. I agree with you. You want to know about 48? Remember, what I'm saying is conservative according to the National American Scientific Council. Everybody want to hear, you want to hear 48 prophecies? Anybody? Anybody? So they do hours of calculations. What are the chances that any human being could fulfill 48 prophecies? Here's your answer. 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now, that's a 1 with 157 zeros behind it. Let me illustrate that. I can't use the silver dollar too big. I got to go down to a smaller item. I got to go down to an electron. Do you know how small an electron is? Do you know? If I have a one inch line of electrons that big, straight line, and I start counting them right now, 250 per minute, and I don't go to sleep, it would take me 19 million years to count the one inch line of electrons. 
if I have that many electrons, I gotta make a sphere, a big ball. You know how big the ball of electrons would be? It'd be as far as man has ever seen into space through the Hubble telescope. 13 billion light years. Okay, now, mark one of those electrons. <laughs> Blindfold a guy, put him in a space shuttle, send him into outer space at any point in time. He can say stop, and he gets out of the space shuttle, still blindfolded. He picks out one electron. The chance of picking out the one marked electron is the chances that any human being over 2,000 years could have fulfilled 2,000 or, or 48 of those prophecies. Yet Jesus not only fulfilled all 48, he fulfilled all 300. Now, can I review what I just said? We have 300 predictions written by guys that many of them don't even know what the other guys wrote. The last one's written 400 years before Jesus is even born. Jesus comes along and fulfills all 300. And you tell me the Bible doesn't apply to today? You're crazy. Are you seeing this? This is why the writer of Hebrews, I want to show you, this is New Testament writing. He says this. He says, we must listen. Look at the words here, must. Think of the word must, not should. We must listen very, look at the word very, very carefully to the truth we've heard or we may drift from it. This is written to Christians. How many of you know drifting doesn't happen knowingly? It happens unknowingly. Are you with me? When I was a boy and I used to fish, I'd forget to anchor and I'd be fish, fishing away. 30 minutes later, I wouldn't even recognize the shoreline. I drifted so far and I didn't even know I drifted. Can I ask you a question? If you had to walk across a landmine field and there were thousands of landmines, let's say it was a 10 mile long, 10 mile wide field and there were thousands of landmines and I gave you a map that showed where every single landmine is, how would you handle it? I mean, you step on one of those, you're dead. Would you just casually glance at the, land, at the map and then just walk across and if you have time, you would read it? Would you just pack it and say, hey, if I got time on this journey, I'll read it. If you did either of those scenarios, they'd carry you out in a body bag. I'm going to tell you what you'd do. You'd study that thing. You'd pull it out every couple steps because you pack it in your backpack, easier to reach than your water bottle. And you'd keep pulling it out, referencing it. Look, folks, we are walking through a landmine field. It's called the world. And God's given us a roadmap. It's called the word of God. That's why, David, that's why David said, your word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my path. You know, I had three leaders tell me, they said, John, this is one of the most important books you've ever written for the body of Christ. These are, these are great men of God. And, and so when I, I was done with this book and the third one said, I, I said, okay, God, why is this one so important? And the Holy Spirit said to me, it's a calibration book. I said, calibration book. And so I started researching what calibration really means. And you know where calibration is most frequently used? It's used for gas detectors that are put in chemical factories. See, federal law requires that every, every room in a chemical factory has to have a gas detector in it. Because if you get a little bit of gas chemicals in your system, it'll damage you for life. And so if you get enough, it'll kill you. And so every room in a chemical factory has to have these gas detectors. And Honeywell is the number one manufacturer of these gas detectors. So I went right to Honeywell's website and I asked the question on their website, how do I calibrate one of your gas detectors? 
And it brought me to a page. And do you know what Honeywell writes on that page? They said, we recommend that you calibrate these gas detectors every day. You want to know why every day? Because the atmosphere corrupts the sensors. So you know what they have to do? They have to bring the gas detectors into a clean air room. They clean off the sensors, zero out the machine. So when we put it back into the chemical factory, they know they're going to get accurate readings. And this was confirmed to me by somebody who was here Friday night. Let me tell you something. We, our heart is our sensor. We live in a corrupt environment. It's called the world. And what we have to do is every day we should be going to a clean air room. It's called the Word of God and the presence of God. So that when we go back out into society, the world, we're not going to be conformed to it. But we're going to prove, listen to this, it's not a formula, what is good, what is perfect, and what is the acceptable will of God. See, here's the situation. We're a church right now that's out of calibration. I don't want to pigeonhole this message to this, but let me show you how out of calibration we are. Last June 26th, when our government ruled on same-sex marriage, remember that? It didn't surprise me. It shouldn't have surprised you. Why? Because the Bible says our society is alienated from the life of God. The Bible says their understanding is darkened. The Bible says they're under the influence of the evil one. The Bible even tells us, Isaiah, in the last days, they're going to call evil good and good evil. Didn't surprise me. But you know what shocked me? Is I put two statements on my Facebook page speaking to the church. One on June 26th, one on June 27th. Four million people viewed that statement. I had 30,000 responses on my Facebook page. Do you know what shocked me? This is what shocked me. All the Christians that were applauding our government's decision. There's one author. She's written a book that many people have written. Do you know what she said? Love wins today. I thought, love wins? I thought love won 2,000 years ago when our creator shed every drop in his blood in his body so we could be free from what enslaves us. You know, if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9, look at this. Do I have that scripture? Yeah, I do. Don't you realize those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Don't call, don't call good God. That's what he's saying, okay? Those who indulge in sexual sin. Whoa, that's me. I was first on the list, okay? I was bound to pornography. Bound. Could not get free. But on May 6th, 1985, I was completely freed. And I'm free today. Okay, so I was first on the list. Sexual sin or who worship idols. That, that's loving Denver Broncos more than Jesus. Or, com- <laughs> and I really like Denver. Um, or commit adultery. I live there. Or commit adultery or practice homosexuality. Or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheap people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says, such are some of you, but Jesus set you free. So I'm sitting there going, Wow. I'm so glad back in 1980s, somebody didn't say to me, man, love wins, John. Don't worry, you're bound to lust. You look at women as a piece of meat. Jesus sets you free. It's okay, don't worry about it. Do your best you can because your sins are covered. I'm so glad they told me that not only Jesus forgave me of the judgment of sin, he gave me the power to walk away from it. And I'm, I'm sitting here looking at it and I'm going, we're out of calibration. 
we have the ability to tell these people, you don't have to be captive. Just as Jesus set me free from idolatry, he set me free from sexual immorality, he can set you free. And yet we're saying love wins. You see what I'm saying? We're out of calibration as a church. I'm going to tell you why. It's because we're not in the Word. We look at the Word of God. We look at scriptures as irrelevant and out of date. I got news for you. They're not irrelevant. They're not out of date. The only Jesus this world is ever going to see is the Jesus in us. And if we're out of calibration, you know what that means? We're not representing him. They can't see him. They hear about a powerless gospel that can't transform my life. Are you getting something out of this? Let's be the church. Let's be the church that truly represents God on the earth. And I really believe this is a prophetic word for this church because I sense time for growth, time for explosive growth. Let's be that church that represents him to the world. Can you say amen? amen. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I want to pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you so very much for what you've done this morning. And Lord, I'm just asking once again, draw men and women's hearts to Jesus. Thank you for your word. It will not return void. We're grateful for it. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I, just, I, I want to give you an opportunity right now to have a relationship, a covenant relationship with your creator. I want to say this. I want you to listen to me, church. You can know that Jesus is the Son of God. You know He died on the cross. You can know He was raised from the dead and still not have a covenant relationship with God. You say, John, how could you say that? Well, let, let me make it to you like this. You can have a girl dating a guy, right? She knows he's an excellent soccer player. She knows he's got a scar on his forehead from a bicycle wreck he was in when he was eight years old. She knows he's an excellent math student. She's been to his house. She's met his siblings. But that doesn't give her a covenant relationship with him. It's not until one day when he gets down on one knee and he opens up a little ring box and he said, will you marry me? At that point, she's got a decision to make. She can ignore his proposal and continue life is, knowing about him, knowing his true siblings, but not having a covenant relationship. Or she can say yes. And if she says yes, she's going to walk down an aisle of a church a couple months later in front of a lot of people with a white dress on. And you know what she's saying? She's saying goodbye to every guy on the face of the earth, except for the one guy waiting for her who proposed to her at the altar. What is she doing? She's giving her entire heart to him. Well, let me tell you something right now. When Jesus, our creator, hung on that cross 2,000 years ago, do you know what that was? I want you to listen. That was him getting down on one knee and opening a little ring box to us and saying, would you be my bride, the bride of Christ? Now at this point, we have a decision to make. We can say, we can ignore his proposal and continue knowing about him and even coming to church and meeting some of his siblings, or we can say yes. And if we say yes, that means we're going to do what that girl does. We're going to give him our entire heart, our entire life. Let me tell you, when Lisa got married to me and I got married to her, we made a lot of mistakes our first few years of marriage. Matter of fact, we still make mistakes today. But you know what? She has my entire heart. She has my entire heart, and I have her entire heart. That's a true relationship between you and your Creator. If you're sitting in here this morning, you say, John, truth be told, I've never really given my entire heart, my entire life to Jesus Christ as my Lord. I want to give you that chance this morning. 
with every head bowed and every eye closed, just put up your hand if you say, John, that's me. I want to give him everything today. Just think Valentine's Day. What a day to do it. Just put your hands up high. Hands are up all over. Wow. Look at all these hands going up. Wow, wow, wow. Just put them up high. No bride's ever been ashamed of her husband. All right. Put your hands back down. And I want to pray with, I want to pray with all those people that raised their hands this morning. Can all of us pray this together? Because the Bible says, with the heart we believe under right standing with God, with the mouth confession is made to salvation. Let's pray this right now. Say this with me. God in heaven. Everybody say it. God in heaven. Thank you so much for sending Jesus. Forgive me for living life my way, apart from you, my creator. But this day, February 14th, 2016, I give my spirit, soul, and body, everything I am, everything I have, to Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are now my Lord. My life is completely yours. Forever we are bonded together. I'm a child of God, and I'm forgiven. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I want you to just thank God for what he's done. Amen. Amen.